This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. Thank you to our newest sponsor, Keg Shoe Keg Tracking. Learn more about what they do at www.kegshoe.ca. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day to day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. As big and as resourced as Anheuser-Busch was, we never spent any time or any of our resources on running malt sampling to see if the COA was correct. What you're about to hear originally aired in August of 2017, but it's worth another listen, especially if you're one of the many brewers encountering difficulty processing the 2021 barley crop. Welcome to the Master Brewers Podcast. I'm your host, John Bryce. Today, we're back with another installment of fan favorite Joe Hertrick. Joe is the retired group director of Brewing Raw Materials at Anheuser-Busch. His responsibilities included operation of the company's malt plants, rice mills, and hop farms, and the supervision of all facilities that produced and handled brewing raw materials for Anheuser-Busch products worldwide. Prior to joining Anheuser-Busch, Joe held various positions in brewing with the Stroh Brewery Company, the Pabst Brewing Company, and the Christian Schmidt Brewing Company. In retirement, he continues to consult, write, and speak on his observations over 50 years in the U.S. brewing industry. Joe is a member of Master Brewers, ASBC, the BA, and the Craft Maltsters Guild. He's also a past member of the American Malting Barley Association and the Canadian Brewing and Malting Barley Research Institute. Joe, once again, thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. Joe, I've received a lot of positive feedback on your previous appearances, so I know listeners are going to be glad to have you back for another episode. In fact, just this past weekend, I was down at the uh, District Texas Summer Meeting in Kerrville, and I spoke with a Master Brewers member who had recently taken the IBD exam. He told me that listening to both the Simplifying the Understanding of Malt COA series we did back in December and the Malt Flavor Development series from February really made things click far better than all the textbooks and and the other study he had done to prepare for that exam. I think folks are really going to enjoy today's topic, so why don't you introduce the title and explain the objectives for today. 
Okay. Um, thanks for the kind words, uh, John. Um, the title today is Moving Beyond Malt COAs and, and Letting Your Process Evaluate the Malt. It, it's true that I've written and made a lot of presentations on interpreting malt analysis and associating what I think are the most important measurements, and, and I think that remains very important. But I started to think about, even if the interpretation of malt analysis reached a highly effective and highly accepted level, it, it's still, in a sense, it's it's a generic explanation for a theoretical brewing process. We think about the Brewers Association is telling us there's 5,000 brewers out there. And if you just say, well, maybe each of them are making five recipes, there's 25,000 applications, so to speak, of malt in different recipes, in different processes, on different equipment sets. And malt evaluation in the brewery, more specific to what an individual brewer is doing, is probably going to be more valuable to him and worth some some time to track it um, because there can't possibly be one satisfactory interpretation of malt analysis for every case. Now, John, I'm not abandoning the need for a brewer to understand the fundamentals of malt analysis uh, and to focus on what's important. I do think they need to be distilled down to what's important. But what I'm saying is we spend an awful lot of time on endless workshops discussing the academic and operational probing of the question, what's the meaning of malt analysis? And these workshops, to me, they generate more heat than they shed light uh, on the subject. What I'd like to see brewers do is look a little bit beyond the COAs and take some energy and devote it to process tracking and establish functionality cause and effect relationships between some of the key malt analysis and their specific process and their specific outcomes, what it means to them for a malt to be functional. Uh, I think it's more valuable than just focusing on malt COAs. Joe, that sounds great, but first maybe we should explain what exactly you mean by malt functionality. Oh, okay. Um, Functionality to me, and I believe it should mean this to brewers, number one, recoveryability of extract. The extract is bound up in barley and malting has to proceed to the point of releasing it and make it free-flowing. The second part of functionality is smooth loudering operations. We need to get it through loudering equipment and recover the, the extract at, at very, very uh, smooth rates. And then the repeatability of attenuation. Um, you know, in all malt brewing, we have a, we're far in excess of the, of the amounts of enzymes we need. And... Repeatability of attenuation a lot of the time depends on the conditioning of the extract. So that's what I mean by malt functionality, maximum extract recovery, trouble-free loudering, repeatable attenuation. And I'm also talking in this case about Brewer's Pale Base Malt for this podcast. We're not really talking about uh, specialty malts. They normally don't contribute to functionality in a positive way. In a lot of cases, you just want your specialty malts to stay out of the way. So I think I think maybe a useful place to start, John, is some of the experiences that I've had working in the brewery. When I thought back on this, how much work I've done on malt that had nothing to do with COAs. Uh, at the beginning of my career in the 60s, I worked at Schmidt's Brewery in Philadelphia. Uh, and at that time, Schmidt's was the 10th large, largest brewery in the U.S. It produced about 3 million barrels in three different breweries. And I was a brew house supervisor, and, and I was 
uh, tasked with handling and evaluating malt. First and foremost, and this is important through every part of this podcast, all the malt was segregated and identity preserved by supplier. And we had a lot of suppliers, but we had 18 malt bins, each holding one rail car. And we had a very rigorous discipline that was drilled into me and I first started in the brew house. Never top a bin, never commingle suppliers. And that's critical to the rest of our discussion. If you want to evaluate the malt in the process, you have to have identity segregation for tracking. It's kind of easy um, if you're bagged or super sack brewer because you've got them identified in batches right there. It's easy for a larger brewer with multiple bins. I realize this can be a little tough for a brewer that's at the size that he just has a single bulk bin. Now, we had many suppliers, and um, we basically worked on malt evaluation based on supplier name. And I must have worked in the brew house five years before I ever saw a malt COA. But here's some of the examples of the tracking we did then and a brewer. Joe, can, Joe let me interrupt yes. you. Sorry, is it safe yep. to assume that you, you always knew the varieties coming from each supplier? Um, actually, no. No. Actually, at that time, no. Wow. Actually, okay. not. All right. All right. Now, so the, if, you, if you weren't looking at COAs, what did you look at? We looked at how was the process reacting to the malt and actual results from the process. Now, let me give you some examples. Uh, the first one was in the mill room. Um, we had four mills. We had a louder tub brew house and a, and a mash filter brew house. And there was this big chalkboard in the mill room. It had all the suppliers. And we had a lot of suppliers, names that people wouldn't even recognize today, like Kurth and Minnesota Malding and Schreier Malding and places like that. But on this chalkboard, all the suppliers were listed, and then the mill settings for every one of the rollers on the four malt mills, 24 settings. Whenever we would go into a malt bin of a new supplier, we would clear through the system and we'd immediately sample for screen analysis. And we'd determine if that malt ground on that setting for that supplier gave us the right sieve analysis. If it did, we kept right on going. And we, we baked in, then that is the malt setting for that supplier. If it didn't, if something had changed since the last time we used that supplier, we would reset the mills, make adjustments uh, to try to address the screen analysis, change, uh, take another sample uh, for sieve analysis. And then if we got, when we got to the results we wanted, that chalkboard would be changed to the settings required for that supplier. It would be like a, a neural network learning what should the settings be for this malt. And then that would stay there for the amount of malt that we ground, multiple bins or one bin. And then we would repeat the process whenever we change suppliers. Uh, the second thing we had, and it wasn't really a true <laughs> extract, but, uh, but I was responsible for tracking what was the fermenter recovery rate by supplier. And um, all I knew was the supplier's name, and what we would we knew the pounds of malt that we had used. We weren't looking at a COA what the extract level was. We would compare that to the pounds of extract recovered in fermenting. Uh, we would take the play-doh and the um, um, and the volume and know the pounds of extract recovered, and it would be back against the pounds of malt used, uh, just the gross weight out number, not the uh, the extract number. And we had a, a, an idea idea then of what the um, of, of what the extract recovery was we did 
mash conversion changes based on the outcomes in fermenting. Uh, we would finish the fermentation. Beer would be moved into storage, be croisoned. When we looked at those results, we had the attenuation rates. And again, the malt identity tag followed this all the way through. And we would look at where we stood with attenuation. And we would blend the beer going forward. But going backwards, we would say that supplier requires a conversion change at the max mash mixer. 10 minutes had to be added. Temperatures had to be altered, and we would go back for the next time that we ever saw that malt, we'd change the conversion procedure. Also, back then, uh, we would do a color adjustment. It was not uncommon back then. Um, potassium metabisulfite tends to be a little bit of a bleaching agent, um, and it can be added to the brew kettle. To, to slightly lighten wort. And uh, back at that time, I remember we would look at the finished colors at the end of the process. And again, that supplier tag was on it. And we'd say, okay, we want to add a pound of, of KMS, potassium, potassium metabisulfate, and make this a little bit lighter. Coming up, Joe explains how to track malt performance in the brew house against key parameters found on your COA. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. This episode brought to you by BSG, exclusive distributors of RAR Malting Company. Since 1847, RAR Malt has been a benchmark of quality and consistency for brewers from the 19th century through today's craft beer pioneers. Whether you're creating classic lagers, resin-clouded hazies, or barrel-aged behemoths, RAR North Star Pills, malted oats, and more are here to make your brewing dreams a reality. Get in touch at go.bsgcraft.com slash contact us. Are you looking to improve yield, quality, and sustainability in your cellar? Alpha Laval has over 60 years of brewing experience, offering centrifuges, dealkalization systems, yeast plants, and complete cold block cellar projects designed for the most gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages. Let the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your greatest production and sustainability goals. Visit alphalaval.us mbaa to learn more. Thank you to Brewing with Enzymes by Novazymes. For commercial brewers, enzymes can ease filtration, eliminate diacetyl rest, meet attenuation targets, and optimize your raw materials to save on labor. If you're curious to learn more, head over to brewingwithenzymes.com 
and get 50% off with your first order using discount code MBAA. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Texas has a virtual spring meeting April 7th. And another Master Brewers webinar, this one on the topic of funding opportunities for brewing research, April 14th. Don't miss the Building a Welcoming Workplace webinar, April 19th. District Northwest meets May 20th and 21st in beautiful Hood River. Lab on the Cheap, another Master Brewers webinar, June 8th. I can highly recommend the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course, which starts July 8th in Madison, Wisconsin. The 2022 Brewing Summit, that's the combined meeting with Master Brewers and ASBC, is August 14th through the 16th in Rhode Island. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. point is here, all these things, the strategy was focused on evaluating the process reaction and the beer that was made. And from the point that we got the evaluation, we would blend it as forward necessary to go into finishing. But then we would have this sort of little artificial intelligence network, what we learned about the malt supplier, um, that we would use to make adjustments whenever that malt supplier arrived in the process again. It wasn't real-time adjustment. It was. It might be six months till we bought that, till we got another car of that malt. But we'd always be trying to bring the process back to the center of target of the process. So I'm describing a, a process that a an evaluation and tracking process that has to do with the beer made it doesn't have anything to do with this with the coas at that time i could tell you that kurth malt made lighter beer than schreier malt or i could tell you that laddish malt had a better fermenting recovery rate than minnesota malt but none of this was any association with uh, coas so i think that's it's, it's an indication of you can really focus on your process and associate it with malt without getting completely bogged down in the CO, COA numbers. Joe, yeah. that, that's fascinating. Do, do, do those observations tend to hold true across multiple crop years? For instance, was Kurth malt lighter every year? I think I, I think not, John. If I recall, the um, if I recall, that was just. We would we would start over again when new crop changed over, okay. and it might and it might require uh, an adjustment that was being caused not just by supplier changes but by crop year changes. Okay. So then, if you fast forward forty five years to the end of my career working for Anheuser Busch, a couple things in common. Uh, the first things in common was the malt was still rigorously segregated by supplier. No topping bins, uh, no commingling suppliers. You rigorous, rigorously separated it by supplier and identified everything in the process by supplier. I, I don't remember this for sure, but I don't think brewing departments actually got COA reports. I think I think they all went into the to the corporate brewing materials group for consolidation of data, but I don't think the brewing departments actually looked at their COAs or had to. Um, but instead, 
in 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 at Anheuser Busch, we were working with a massive system of automated and manual data collection from the process. Anything that could possibly be measured was brought into this system. Um, data from inline analysis instruments, and then all the laboratory results were put into it, and then it was crunched into a, a meaningful, uh, comprehensive, and actionable process report given to the brewmaster. And he would make process adjustments. There was no need there to debate COAs. There was no need to, to, to think about them because the process audited the malt. We didn't really have to talk about to the supplier. We didn't even have to talk about COA numbers. We talked about what our process was doing. The malt was either successful or it was unsuccessful uh, in the process. So, you know, if you look at that, some common ground across 45 years in two very, very different breweries and two very, very different uh, times of available technology, the focus is on the brewing process, how it reacts to the malt, and then keep tuning the process to the malt. Very different levels of sophistication, but really an identical approach. No, fo no focus on testing malt to confirm lab, uh, confirm supplier COAs, no debating sampling techniques in lab variances, in between lab variances, or agonizing over what malt analysis means. Just keep focusing on the process. Joe, let's talk about that process tuning a little bit. H how much of that occurred in the brewery and how much occurred at the malt house? So given the size of Anheuser-Busch, I'd imagine suppliers might react very quickly when you found malt to be, as you said, unsuccessful in the brewing mm -hmm. process. Yep. How did that dialogue work? Did you simply say, look, we're not getting the extract or color or attenuation or water times or whatever it is that we want? And, and if so, what happened after that? Well, it, in that case, the, the, it, at Anheuser-Busch, the raw materials department existed to allow the brewing departments and the brewmaster to focus on making the beer. So the process would go from the brewmaster going to the raw materials department and said, I have something that's not working here. Okay. And then the raw materials department, through their regular inspection and interaction with the maltsters, would start to adjust the malting process um, because the data was coming in uh, of off kilns and uh, results from the malt houses. All that data was flowing to um, to the raw materials department. And uh, yeah, then the interaction would take place. But again, it's important to understand the distinction. The interaction took place on the process results. As big and as resourced as Anheuser-Busch was, we never spent any time or any of our resources on running malt sampling to see if the COA was correct. Right. We did all kinds of other work to check the process. We did some malt analysis for research purposes, but with all of our resources, we would not waste one minute on measuring a COA, a measuring malt to talk to a maltster about is the COA correct? We focused on this malt's working, not working. We think this is the reason it's not working. We think it needs to be moved in this direction or the other direction. Uh, we need kilning adjustments because of uh, uh, of the color results we're getting. Uh, we need uh, modification adjustments because of the enzyme profile. But I really want to emphasize that point that we never spent a minute trying to see if the COA was correct. <laughs> We spent, we spent time focusing on how is our process. 
So, um, you know, this sort of, with that as background, and I apologize for taking a lot of time to explain that background and make that point, but it leads us to what can a craft brewer or any brewer, for that matter, do to follow these principles, to just switch over from focusing on COAs to document malt functionality when it's used in their brewery, and how do they, how do they, get their preferred beer outcomes and seek repeatability. And I'm going to describe a couple examples of tracking, and they're really just based on three COA-reported numbers. Uh, The extract that's reported by the supplier, the beta-glucan that's reported by the supplier, and the friability that's reported by the supplier. So as I said before, you start with always segregating the malt uh, by its source, and you have to have a COA associated with the malt. Now, I know in some smaller cases, uh, you don't get a COA report with it, and you get a bag tag that says, go on the website, put in this number, and get the COA, which is, if that's what has to be done, that's what has to be done. But the very first step always with the segregated malt source is take the COA extract, the fine grind dry basis extract, and calculate a brew house yield on the set of brews, on every brew or a set of brews. Because if you go way back in history, extract recoveryability has always been a key functionality measure. It's always been a proxy for adequate modification and extract release. The the density-based extract measurements in science, going back to Balmay and Bricks and Plato, they preceded all other measurements by hundreds of years. And a lot of malt was evaluated in the, in the earlier days only by checking the extract, because that was a measurement of how, uh, how well the malt was, was modified. Did it release extract? And there's a couple of interesting analysis still out there that tells you about this. For anybody that gets malt in Great Britain, you might see on your malt report a CWE, a cold water extract. It's an old British um, um, ale brewer analysis of malt. But it's it's a mashing and extraction in cold water. I think now it's done at room temperature. It used to be done in ice water years ago. But... And then the extract is measured. And and what it's being measured is what is the inherent extract in the malt after it's made before it's subjected to any cooking or enzyme activity. And for instance, on a on a CWE, on a British cold water extract, 20% extract 20% extract is a good number. Hmm. Because it, and 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 you see the same thing in Germany. You'll see a lot of um, German malt analysis will have a VZ45 on it, a, a hard tongue. 45. And what that means is that malt was mashed at a constant temperature, 45C, which is 113F, which is an indication of what is the inherent malt extract when you just expose the malt to a mashing process that um, only activates the low temperature enzymes and it never goes above 45. Uh, That extract number, it's really good if you get a 39% extract. So what these things are telling you is at different levels in different parts of the process, um, there's a um, um, there's different amounts of extract and, and, and people have tried in the past in, to inherently get at what is what is the, num- the, a, the number that's good modification for extract. Now, of course, today we put it through a Congress wart mashing and we have an expectation of 81, 82 percent malt. Um, 
addition, I mentioned heart tongue. There was you, you can read in old history books. It's not used very much today, but heart tongue developed an index for malt modification based on extract. He would make a mash at 25. C, which is about 77, way below all the enzymes, at 65, which is right at the carbohydrate enzyme level, and 149, and then at 85, he would make all these separate mashes to get the extract level, and then calculate an index. And uh, if it had all the right, um, if it had all the right modification that released at the different levels, um, it was the. Um, um, it was the it was an indicator of how well the malt was modified. So um, I guess my point here is always look at as a measure of modification and as a key measure of functionality your extract recovery. Um, and also, if you're the brewmaster owner, you're interested in that. If you're the brewmaster and not the owner, it's the highest cost component. And your owner is certainly interested in extract recovery. <laughs> Join us next week for part two, where Joe explains how to plot extract recovery and other process performance metrics against reported COA values. From there, you can better understand and predict how any given malt is likely to perform in your brew house. The next thing you should do is take that yield you're going to calculate on every batch and track it against beta-glucan that's on the COA. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. <laughs>